This is Trepwire Week in Review for the week ending February 26th. I'm Haley Keen with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with Joe McBride, head of CRE Finance, and Lonnie Hendry, head of advisory services. Martha and Manis are out this week, but the show must go on. This week, another pharmaceutical firm is on track to get FDA approval for the vaccine, as more than 66 million doses have been given nationwide. In economic data, initial jobless claims were lower than expected, fourth quarter GDP was revised upward, and durable goods sales jumped well above expectations, but pending home sales were a miss for last month. And this week, the market closely watched Fed Chair Powell's testimony as he walked the tightrope of concern over inflation and maintaining the easy money policy. Joe, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, thank you, Haley. You stepped in wonderfully there. Uh, I think once you said that Manis and Martha are out, we lost about 75% of our listeners. So for those of you who stuck around, thank you very much. We miss them dearly, and uh, they'll be back next week. Yeah, I'm looking at my stock account, not my stock account, but I have a bunch of stocks that I follow on my phone on the Apple account, and I'm scrolling down the list, and I see... Amazon down 3%, Apple down 3%, Penn down 9%, Visa 3%, Facebook. I get all the way to the bottom and I see GameStop up 20%, up as much as 50% earlier in the day. So as much as Jerome Powell soothed the markets on Tuesday and Wednesday, saying that he doesn't foresee them, he doesn't foresee inflation for at least another couple of years, which was kind of his hint of saying they're not going to raise rates for another couple of years. All of a sudden, the 10-year treasury hit over 1.5% today. And that is a huge, I think it's a psychological mark, that 1.5%. And there were a lot of investment banks out there saying that uh, you know, once you reach this level or some level close to it, you're going to see a correction. Uh, all of these large tech stocks, which are really kind of the biggest drivers of the market in general, are priced to perfection and priced with a discount rate of essentially zero. So having a discount rate of zero makes sense when the 10 years at 60 basis points. But now that it's up you know, to 1.5% or so, which is about 60 basis points higher than it was coming into the beginning of the year, you know, those valuations start to get a little worrisome. Other stocks um, that are more of a play on the recovery of the real economy or the in-person economy, those were rallying uh, yesterday, uh, although I think the kind of the whole market is being dragged down today. So yeah, we talked to John Worth from Nary uh, this week, and that'll come out next week. And he was talking about you know how rising interest rates for the right reasons are usually uh, over the long term good for commercial real estate and good for REITs. Rising rates for uh, bad reasons, like let's say uh, the Fed is not buying enough and that's not holding yields down enough, or uh, there's some sort of you know runaway inflation, then that's kind of a problem where the Fed has to step in and and raise rates artificially. So you know there's there's kind of a lot of volatility going on in the market right now. And we've continued to see similar volatility in office retail and lodging, which we'll go into. I will say that a couple of numbers to bring up here. Uh, the jobless claims uh, were lower than expected. So that's good. So real economy looking decent. Uh, COVID cases and hospitalizations are down significantly. I think a drop of around 60% in hospitalizations and cases have dropped more than almost 80% in the last few weeks. 
and the last number I'll give you on COVID is that I think the number is around 45 million people in the U.S. have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. And good news, the two main vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, are around 90% effective after one dose, which is kind of new data that came out recently. So that's really great. Uh, and I think it's about 21 million people have gotten a two-dose vaccine. So things are really looking up in terms of the return to the real economy. But as usual, the stock market doesn't follow what you would logically expect. Yeah, I think you uh, you you spit a lot out there, Joe. That's some pretty good. I'm just insight. following. I'm trying to follow in Manis's footsteps here. Well, you know what's funny is I think I thought that maybe we had a leak, like somebody let the market know that that Martha and Manis weren't going to be on the podcast today, and it set everything into upheaval. <laughs> the market just didn't know what to do because they weren't going to be on the pod. So, um, you know, I think it's very interesting. You the disconnect between the market and maybe the real economy, and how we're seeing signs with the vaccine. Uh, being more broadly distributed and the uh, effectiveness being reported even after the first dose, that there's this huge pent up demand that I think everyone's starting to feel. But then you look at the stock market and you look at the Fed comments and you look at all these things in conjunction. And I don't think anyone really knows at this point, like where we're at. I mean, one thing I miss that I didn't think I would miss is on the uh, the conference circuit that we all used to be, to be on is, you know, what inning are we in? And, you know, everyone was like, we're in the, the 13th inning of a double header. Um, and at this point, you know, we're 10 months into the pandemic uh, and with all the moves the Fed has made and the money printing and everything that's been going on, you know, and a lot of the lenders with the commercial real estate stuff kind of kicking the can a little bit at this point. And we'll talk a little bit later, I know, around forbearance and other things that they're doing to be creative to not feel the direct impact of those things. I don't know if we know any more today necessarily about the real economy um, than we did before this started. What inning are we in? Remember that? <laughs> you know, how, how often would you hear that? And I don't, we definitely have not heard that at all. I think right now we're in the, uh, you just played uh, five full court pickup basketball games and like seven or eight of the guys had to go home or catch a train. And you're playing that last kind of half court two on two game because uh, you have to be king of the court. You want to go undefeated for the night. And turning to headlines in the office sector, we've seen even more corporate move outs. Let's first look at Seattle. So yeah, we mentioned Seattle last week and we've been mentioning sublease sub activity uh, and headquarters moves and all that type of stuff uh, over the last kind of three or four episodes. In Seattle, Boeing is shutting down their uh, corporate campus there. Uh, they had, that's from the Seattle Times. They sent out an announcement to all of their employees to come and, and pack up their offices. And the implication is that they will be uh, getting that building ready for sale. I think that was a two building, uh, you know, several hundred thousand square feet office park. So yeah, that Seattle story was from uh, Dom Gates of the Seattle Times. So uh, good reporting there. Another one uh, was from Melody Simmons of the Baltimore Business Journal. Transamerica tells its 550 workers to pack up their space uh, in their building there at the Transamerica Tower at 100 Light Street, where they've been since 2011. Uh, Transamerica had some statements about how they are rethinking their office footprint. They also had sold that Transamerica Pyramid building in San Francisco early in the year for 700 million under the kind of the same initiative of rethinking their office space. Uh, that's that very cool looking building at the top of the hill in San Francisco. 
It always reminds me of uh, Mrs. Doubtfire whenever I see that one. I did a search in TREP on Transamerica as a tenant. Uh, only came up with really, there were two, but one of them was a very, very small footprint. The other one was in Legacy Central, which is a, a transitional type uh, story in a KKR commercial real estate CLO. Currently 52 million, bal- 52 million outstanding with uh, potential for $80 million uh, potentially in future funding. That's in Plano, Texas, not far from Lonnie. Transamerica is the second largest tenant there. Uh, we actually wrote about that particular property in December when Peloton signed a big new lease. So it doesn't seem like there's a problem there, but it's always worthwhile to keep your eye on these types of tenants, uh, especially when they've made announcements about you know thinking more rationally about their footprint. Yeah, I think what's interesting, Joe, if you go back to the Boeing story, you know, that that's a 30-year-old complex built on the former Long Acres horse racing track site. You know, you got to think there's probably some functional obsolescence built into that. So when they say they're clearing the the property out, getting it ready for sale, I mean, is there really a market for an almost 900,000 square foot office complex at this point? I mean, I think that's where we're going to start to see maybe a little bit of a bifurcation in the market on is there even a repurposing of those? Is there a viable use for that uh, in the new environment? Yeah, that, and that comes on the heels of Nordstrom, Dropbox, F5, and Amazon all making, this is different, they're moving out completely. The other ones were sublet stories, but you know that's another couple hundred thousand square feet potentially hitting the market in the next year or two. Your, your, your comment reminds me of... Uh, when my wife and I, or my, my fiance and I back then, we were looking for wedding venues, but we went to this venue in Westchester and you walk in and it's like an MC Escher painting. Like they have stairways and wood paneling and like all this crazy stuff. And I think it was like an old IBM campus or something. And it was exactly that. It was the perfect venue for if you were getting married in The Shining. Right. Or if you were getting married in like the early 80s and they hadn't like the carpet was the same, you know, everything was the same and they wanted to charge us like today's prices. And it was it was crazy. So it might be the same story when the leasing broker is, is walking you through that old Boeing office. But we uh, actually had a uh, in, in for my Texas Tech role, uh, we actually had a guest speaker come in and speak to our real estate organization last night. That's a tenant rep in the Dallas area. And he said he had a a 10,000 square foot law office uh, that was going to move across the street from one building to the other, just to kind of get some context around the sublease space. Basically, they did a seven-year term. They got one month free for each year they signed. First year, completely deferred. Uh, $20 square foot TI allowance, plus an additional TI allowance that they were going to cut in the form of a lump sum check. And an out after three years, no questions asked. I mean, things that you never would see uh, never would have seen, you know, in the last five or six years. And so I think it's really interesting just to see how the market is adopted and how landlords are willing to take bets on, you know, smaller tenants, maybe with no credit, no history, just to try to keep the lights on and keep the, uh, keep the building occupied. That was in Texas, Lonnie? It was in Texas. Yeah. That's Texas where people are going to the office. And yeah, exactly. And right? really the, the numbers don't, the, delinquency and everything else relative to uh, some of these larger markets in Houston and others where they've been dramatically impacted. I mean, Dallas has felt less of the brunt than, uh, than a lot of these other markets. So I can only imagine in some of these uh, stories that we're talking about here, what, what the residual impact is going to be to the market. I think it doesn't help. You have uh, Goldman Sachs CEO coming out and saying that work from home is an aberration. So you have this 
this dichotomy of views, right? You have tenants that are basically abandoning the office and then you have other folks coming out and saying, we can't do this like this. This is not the new normal. We're going to stop this and bring our team back. And so uh, again, kind of goes back to the market. Like we don't know what the fundamentals are at this point. We don't know what's real. Um, and everyone kind of just navigating it, I think, in the best course of action that they think, you know, for their organization. So I also, you know, you hear kind of these anecdotes from our clients or people we know that are in the real estate industry, especially like the real estate capital markets. And it's almost like incumbent upon them that they go back to the office, right? Because they represent, they're like, lifeblood is the industry itself. And they need to kind of be seen supporting that work from office uh, theme. So there was one other uh, kind of negative, which was from the San Francisco Biz Journal, uh, that Square has announced that similar to Boeing, they're not going to sell the property, but they uh, told all their employees to uh, pack up their stuff and they're going to go full remote. Uh, and that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's a very, very large, high value tech company. You know, you haven't really seen that from Facebook or, or Google or Amazon uh, to, for them to commit to fully work from home. They had 470,000 square feet. And there was uh, a few notes from Square themselves saying that it'll be very difficult to sublet that space. So they are probably going to still be on the hook for millions of dollars in rental payments over the next few years. I will turn it around. And there was a positive, and we're going to do, uh, in honor of Manus, just like this entire episode is, we're going to do the deal of the week. So uh, this was from the Commercial Observer. We actually wrote about it in Trepwire uh, because it touches a CMBS loan. This is in New York. So 55 Broadway, uh, who is the landlord is uh, brokered by CBRE. They signed four new deals, uh, lease deals for space, uh, covering about almost 12% of their square footage. They signed the Consulate General of Morocco. That sounds very cool and exotic. Uh, Assurant, uh, not so uh, cool and exotic, but I like Assurance, so don't get mad. Hanum, Ferretic, Prendergast, and Merlino, uh, which is a law firm, and then fund a fund manager called Clear Street. CBRE's uh, Brad Gerla, or Gerla, Jonathan Cope, Caroline Merck, and Craig Matola represented the landlord, uh, Harbor Group International. Robert Weisenberg, Scott Slovis. I actually think we've mentioned Scott Slovis before on the podcast. And Brent Woodruff, also of CBRE, worked on the deal for Assurant. Commercial Observer uh, didn't reveal who worked on, on behalf of the other tenants. So, you know, why is this? I mean, this is a good story no matter who you are, but why is it good? And why did we write about it for Trepwire? The property backs $105 million loan split across two CMBS deals from 2014. Uh, JPM BB 2014 C19, there's a 35 million slice there. And JPM CC 2014 C20, which is actually part of CMBX 8, that's the 35 million piece, the 70 million pieces in the other deal. So good story, positive story. The loans, the loan is slated to mature in April. There are some comments in the watch list indicating the borrower has been looking for or requesting an extension, um, but the loan has stayed current throughout the pandemic. So positive story there for, for a very large CMBS loan. So turning to retail, we saw more store closings this week and even more news for malls. Yeah, thanks, Haley. So on the retail front, 
Fry's Electronics has announced that it's closing its remaining 31 stores, joining the likes of Crazy Eddie, Nobody Beats the Wiz, and Circuit City. <laughs> hey, you know what? I was actually having a conversation with my dad last night, and he mentioned that he wanted to go buy a battery charge detector thing from Radio Shack. He said, yeah, I'm going to go to Radio Shack and get this thing. I go, what? You, what are you talking about, Radio Shack? He goes, yeah, there's one in Stamford, Connecticut. I'm like, you're going to drive 40 minutes to Stamford, Connecticut to go to a Radio Shack to figure out how much juice is left in your bag? I mean, he wants to do it for, for my son, you know, my two-year-old to show him some cool stuff. But, you know, you just got me thinking with Nobody Beats the Wiz, Circuit City, those types of places. Like, there, there are still some phantom Radio Shacks and at least one Blockbuster out there. Well, it's crazy. You go on the Fry's website, good luck. I mean, you're not getting what you need because they have everything else and you can't even find what you're looking for. <laughs> they probably have it. I'm a fan of fries. We're going to see miss seeing them go. But uh, this is why 20... we need you, Lonnie, because I have no idea what fries is. So fries is just like <laughs> Circuit City, but it's uh, it's got a Radio Shack uh, feel to it. So it's kind of custom. Like if you want to build your own metal detector in the backyard, you can go to fries and find all the components and put it together. And if you want to buy some speakers for your surround sound that you think might be new, but you're not sure you can go to fries because they probably have an open box. Um, so Victoria's secret also announced closing 30 to 50 stores. Their store sales per square foot seems to be the largest in a lot of the malls that, that trip tracks. They're shifting away from enclosed malls. I think they've been kind of transitioning for the last few years to these open concept walk-up type of uh, shopping centers. Um, so that's 30 to 50 stores. Um, and then Sears, you know, they're hanging in there, but they're down to fewer than 30 stores left. So, I mean, we're getting down close to single digits for some of these folks. Yeah, we had another, we talked about these guys for the last couple of weeks with Belk, uh, officially filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy on Tuesday. Uh, gained approval for their restructuring plan. We have a, a list, uh, an exposure list up on our product. For those of you who are our clients, you know the loans in the spotlight page. There are 89 loans. Outstanding balance is a little bit overstated because some of those loans are large portfolio loans and maybe only one or two of the properties in the portfolio have a belk, but it's you know around $5 billion outstanding uh, that's on that list. So, so go check that out. Or if you... Uh, if you're not a client, uh, shoot us an email at uh, podcasttrip.com. We kind of walk you through that. So, so yeah, Lonnie, I mean, you you talked about it on our uh, corporate Monday morning meeting the past week. I guess we can jump into our educational segment on co-tenancy and that, that Sears uh, story is a good segue to it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we, we did touch on it on our internal meeting and it's it's pretty applicable to the market now. So, I mean, for a lot of practitioners, they're fairly familiar with what co-tenancy is, or sometimes referred to as co-T clauses. But for those of you that maybe aren't, we're kind of going to kind of kind of give you an overview of that. So, co-tenancy clause is usually found in retail leases. It allows the tenants to either reduce the rent or potentially even vacate the premises or terminate their lease if certain named tenants or a certain percentage of named tenants stop operations or reduce their footprints within a retail shopping center or mall property. So this kind of protects the, the small guys in the, in the center. So if you are an inline tenant in a shopping mall, dependent on that foot traffic that's driven by the big box retailers and those retailers go dark, that detrimentally impacts your business. And so they negotiate those clauses with the landlord upon uh, move in to say, if Nordstrom and, uh, and Macy's backs out, 
we want to either be able to reduce our rent commensurate with that or uh, potentially vacate. So there's two common forms of a co-tenancy clause. You have a pre-operation or a post-operation. And in the pre-operation, it's potentially, or usually I'd say usually for um, new construction or redevelopment where you have large name tenants that maybe haven't opened their storefronts yet. And so as a, a smaller tenant, you maybe don't have to start paying rent until they reach a certain occupancy threshold or the name tenants actually are open. I think what we're talking about now, though, is the post-operation where, you know, you have existing tenants in a space like a mall where a large retailer announces they're going to be closing the store. This could trigger some of the co-tenancy clauses for the smaller tenants. Where TREP fits into this is we actually track that data in our system. So on all the single asset, single borrower, regional, super regional mall deals in our system, we have the co-tenancy clauses for a number of the large or major tenants in the space. Um, and it'll give you actual details related to what tenants, what name tenants have to be in operation, what percentage of the mall has to be occupied in order for these smaller inline tenants to be able to uh, implement the co-tenancy clause. And so, you know, we, we actually in 2021 have started off an advisory services division kind of geared toward these custom CRE solutions for our products. And so this is something that I've been digging into in my role where we're actually combing these documents and putting together pretty uh, robust examinations of what co-tenancy clauses look like across the major malls in the US. So if you're doing any type of due diligence or underwriting, or you need a deeper dive into potential risks for those malls, if these large tenants move out, TREP can certainly be a resource for you in that advisory capacity. Yeah, so Lonnie, we you know we charge for advertising on on the podcast, right? So you're yeah. you're gonna have to send us yeah a memo I, the after checks this. in the mail the checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes me think about first of all, there is so much data under the data, right? So that and that's kind of what Lonnie's talking about. There's a ton of information uh, that's not kind of readily accessible, but it is there if you really dig. That's part of what the advisory team has been has been working on. Uh, over the last several months, we talk a lot in Tripwire about, um, or we've, you know, for many years, we've talked about these anchor tenants uh, closing up or downsizing or whatever it may be. And a lot of times they're non-collateral tenants, right? So that basically means, and we've had actually a listener or two ping us about this over the last several months of, you know, how this mall sell for such a low number. And it's well, because it wasn't the whole mall, it was just the inline uh, kind of portion and Sears or Nordstrom's or whoever uh, owns their box. But it's still really important to know what's going on with those non-collateral tenants, because very often they are the ones that are uh, the triggers, right? The tenants that may trigger uh, co-tenancy clauses in the collateral tenant space. Just kind of quick, quick digression back, you know, you talked about Victoria's Secret, Lonnie, and how they tend to be some of the highest per square foot sales. Obviously, probably Apple is up there too. So what does that mean for a, a property losing a Victoria's Secret instead of losing a, you know, a Cinnabon or something? Yeah, I mean, so just to put some context around it, I think Apple is a multiple of everyone's sales in right. the mall. So I mean, like you look at their sales per square foot without regard to location, and it's exponentially more than most of the inline tenants. And so while Victoria's Secret is going to be you know higher on the ledger than some of the others, uh, Apple is in a class of its own. So if you can get an Apple in your center, whether it be a, a power center or a mall, uh, that, that's what you want because that definitely drives. You can't go into an Apple store even in the pandemic without having to wait. Um, so Victoria's Secret, you know, 
they've been a mainstay in the mall mall space for a long time. So I think they've driven a lot of traffic, their sales, their what that's indicative of is just the foot traffic that comes in there and the number of transactions that they conduct and that the price point. So you want to have, you know, the higher scale retailers as your inline tenants, because hopefully you're bringing in uh, consumers with a little more disposable income that have the ability to buy. And so you don't want to replace a Victoria's Secret with a with a Cinnabon, no offense to the Cinnabon folks, but you know, you're not driving the same revenue or the same type of potential consumer there. So um, it'll be very interesting to see how these malls adjust to this. Um, I think Gap had similar announcements a few months ago that we may have touched on where, you know, they said they have a strategy to, uh, to exit a lot of their mall space. Um, and again, they were uh, one of the top tier, you know, long-term inline mall tenants that's just now making a transition to the new business model. So if I own a mall, I want you to come for your iPad and and stay for the décolletage. <laughs> so there was uh, a couple of other retail we'll touch on. So Washington Prime Group, uh, which is a retail re- missed an unsecured debt payment. Uh, they do still have a 30-day grace period to make that payment before it's considered a default. But they said that they intend to use that uh, time to continue negotiations with lenders. If they fail to pay within that before that grace period ends, it could allow bondholders to demand early repayment and trigger cross defaults on some of the other debts. That's from the Columbus Biz Journal. There have been uh, a, a lot of valuation declines uh, over the last month or two in the remittance data that TREP gets through the CMBS uh, securitized market. Uh, and we'll touch on that in a minute. But before we do, actually, speaking of valuation, there was a story in the real deal this week about uh, muni bonds that are backed by the American Dream Mall project, or I guess it's an actual an operating mall now in New Jersey, formerly known as Xanadu, also known to some people as the Meadowlands Morass. But those bonds apparently uh, had rallied from a price of 87 cents on the dollar to 112. And uh, the 112 price equates to a 5% yield uh, compared to a 7% coupon. They're due in 2050. So it's a real bond market vote of confidence in the return to physical, uh, both shopping and also experience. I mean, if you've ever driven by it uh, on the Jersey Turnpike, you can see the indoor water park, uh, which, which is like massive. Um, actually I'll, I'll give a shout out to Martha, uh, from New Jersey. And she actually texted today and said she drove by the American dream mall. And she said, I remember driving by this and it was a blight. And now it actually looks pretty good. She, she might actually have to go check it out. We did an update on, uh, which we talked about maybe like two or three months back where we basically looked at all of the loans slash properties in the CMBS universe that have gotten an updated appraisal and uh, did some kind of averages and medians and stuff like that. Now, just kind of as a a refresher, again, channeling Manus here and putting on my teacher hat in CMBS, you know, the, the loan level data and the property performance data gets updated on a fairly regular basis, right? So like principal and interest payments, delinquency status, prepayment amounts, all that type of stuff gets updated basically on a monthly basis because that drives bond cash flows. Uh, the property level performance is a little bit less often on the updates. So 
you'll get updated uh, revenues, expenses, then operating incomes, occupancies, things like that, DSCRs on usually a quarterly basis, sometimes semi-annual. Now, if all things go as planned, most of the time, you're not getting an updated appraisal, an updated property value. The only time that that really occurs is when the loan is sent to special servicing and the special servicer orders a new appraisal. So, you know, 99% of the time, that means there's something negative going on. So the vast majority of new appraisals you see will be negative, right? So it's not like a mark to market type thing, you know, where you're marking these values up and down over time. It's actual, you know, a true appraisal, uh, certified appraisal. So since the last time we did this, which was maybe like two or three months ago, we've had another two or 300 new appraisals reported. I'm sure there's been more done that just haven't been kind of stamped and approved and the data hasn't flown through. But uh, just to give you that update, I think last time we looked at averages, this time I'm going to look at medians. They're, they're about the same. Uh, on the hotel space, the median appraised value change, and these are all appraised values that have changed since February of last year. So basically post-COVID. The median price drop is 32%. Uh, on hotels, the median price drop is, wait for it, 46%. So when I saw those numbers, I guess I, it was one of those deals where it wasn't what I expected, but once you see the number, it kind of makes sense, right? Because most of these retail properties that are getting reassessed or reappraised, the question is not well, when am I going to get back to pre-COVID levels in terms of NOI and rental and rent and everything like that? The, a lot of times the question is, will I ever get back, right? Or is this business model even sustainable anymore? So the other interesting kind of nugget within that data was that the average value before the revaluation in the retail space was 88 million versus an average of 45 million in the hotel space. If we look at the medians, it's a little bit, it's a little bit closer. It's 24 million in the retail and, and 18 million uh, in the hotel. But what that tells me is that there's a lot of big malls, large original valuations in the retail bucket uh, that have gotten written down significantly. Uh, office, now the, the sample sizes in, in hotel and retail are, are good. They're large, right? So it's about 430 in the hotel space, a little over 300 in retail. In the other major property types, there's only, relative to that, it's only a handful. There's about 70 or so offices and 60 or so multifamily. In office, the drop has been 38%, which is actually fairly surprising because that's a bigger drop than, than the hotel space. And in multifamily, it's 23%. Not too surprising that that's a lot lower. In industrial, I can count on my two hands how many properties have gotten reappraised, not too surprisingly, and the average drop 2%. Yeah. So on the, uh, on the office, what was the, what was the median value on the office property, Joe? Uh, the median value was 24 million. The average was 78. So there's probably okay. some big, big offices. That's what I was thinking. I think that number might be skewed a little bit with a couple of the really big ones. So I think that makes sense. Like we talked about earlier, if you had an 855,000 square foot office building that was occupied by a single tenant and they move out, well, guess what happens? I mean, overnight, the value goes uh, down pretty, pretty significantly. And so, you know, I think it's interesting, even with those increased numbers, though, in terms of the, the transactions, it's still a relatively very small sample of the overall CNBS universe. And so, you know, I would say that those properties are probably indicative of 
like you were describing properties where the current structure, the current use case, the current business model is probably just no longer viable. The owner knows that, the lender knows that. And so there's no need to continue to just move forward. I think um, that's probably the very upper limit of value loss. And I would say that for most properties where the owner uh, feels like they may make it back, they're going to be fighting tooth and nail to, to prevent those types of value declines. So it'll be very interesting to see how these things actually play out and if they're actually sold out at those losses and if those buildings are eventually raised, you know, and repurposed for something else, or if they get brought back, you know, under a lighter debt load with uh, with a new new owner. So usually to give you a little behind the scenes on the TREP podcast, uh, usually we just ride Manus to the finish line, right? The guy comes with 50 million years of experience and knowledge and anecdotes and quips and Almond Brothers references and stuff like that. And I just kind of jump in with color commentary and ask him questions when he's going too deep in the weeds to make sure our, our younger listeners know what the heck he's talking about. So today I was running queries and I was pulling stuff out and well, we just talked about the data, right? That, that changes and gets updated. I'm looking at the financial performance of properties in CMBS. And just to be clear, the full year 2020 performance data uh, is not nearly kind of reported across the universe yet. Uh, only about, as far as I could tell, only about 10% of the underlying universe has reported updated financials. So take these numbers with a slight grain of salt. I just wanted to get an early look on how things were changing year over year. So I looked at the changes or the kind of average change in uh, top line revenues, in operating expenses, and then in net operating income. And, you know, again, here we go. The, the, the theme stays the same as it always has, right? The story is the same. Lodging in uh, 2020 so far, only a, only a little over 100 properties are actually reporting. So not a huge sample size, but kind of indicative of what we would expect. 44% drop in top line revenue, 33% drop in expenses, almost a 70% drop in NOI year over year. That compares to last year, 2019, where revenue was relatively flat. Operating expenses were up slightly, a couple percentage points, and average NOI change was around negative 3%. So, you know, that's just a massive, massive change. It is a, it's an indicator. These are probably not numbers you would use in an underwriting or in a valuation, but if you were really doing a true kind of as is today, kind of pro forma year one, this, this would be, you know, a place to start. If you have an old number and you want to kind of market to market for 2020, that's, uh, that's where you start. And then you just hope you can ramp the heck out of it uh, in 21 and 22. In retail, I'll just go through a couple of the other ones real quick. So in retail, actually not nearly as bad uh, as you would think. I actually had almost 600 properties reporting Minus down 3% on revenue, about flat on expenses, uh, operating expenses, and down around 3% uh, on net operating income. Industrial uh, grows by a couple of percentage points on all line items there. Multifamily, same, up 3% in NOI. Uh, mobile homes, uh, doing well. I think they were Looking here on this chart, I think they were the biggest grower in terms of net operating income. Um, and then office uh, was actually still had positive NOI of 3.8%. So we might, that might be the long tail. We might have to wait till 21 or 22 to see 
those drops uh, in NOI. So I don't know, Lonnie, if you have any, what do you have in terms of thoughts? We've talked about this when you've been on other podcasts, but you gotta, you gotta give it for the new listeners. If you're valuing one of these properties today and you get a, you know, a trailing 12 months or a trailing, you know, 36 months or whatever it may be, uh, income statement, how the heck are you valuing this stuff? I've actually reached out to several appraisers uh, in the market to try to get a feel for how they're dealing with this. And it seems like the consensus is basically underwriting a five or seven year DCF with the first few years, you know, negatively impacted like they have been with COVID and then ramping back up. I think where the nuance comes in is, is that uh, decline going to last for another 18 months? Are we, you know, almost at the end of it? I mean, if you look at Twitter and you follow some of these folks online, it seems like future bookings have to look pretty good because a lot of people on news of the vaccine and everything else at least appear to be positioned to go on vacation and do trips and try to get back out in the real world. And so I think that's where some of the nuance comes in. I think anyone would say, you know, in major markets, they have confidence that, that hotels are going to come back, that business travel at some level is going to come back. I think at this point, you know, where it gets a little bit touchy is, you know, how quickly do conferences come back, the hotels that rely on that as a revenue stream. You know, we've talked about it in the podcast before. I mean, if 50% of your revenue is non-room revenue um, and you can't have conferences and weddings and other things in your venue, you know, that's a challenge and that doesn't get resolved with just the vaccine. So people have to have confidence to go out in the market. Um, but I think I think this actually is a pretty good segue, Joe. Uh, Acor, commercial real estate lender, uh, Acor Capital announced that they were raising a uh, $1 billion fund to make rescue investments to North American hotels. Uh, so they were going to be kind of like the last mile lender to try to come in and help these folks where maybe the lender has exhausted all forbearance or you know relief that they could extend and the borrower feels like they have no other options. Now Acor comes in, they have about 17 billion in assets under management and they're trying to come in and capitalize on this market. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, do you remember when we were talking about the HOPE Act at the beginning of this whole thing uh, where it never passed, but it was the, the dream was that they were gonna basically subsidize and, and guarantee preferred equity stakes in hotels and other, uh, I think it was, I think it was all commercial real estate, but I think we were talking a lot about hotels at the time. This is the private hope act, right? And what'd you say? It was a billion dollars that they raised yeah, billion uh, for this particular fund. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. The, the thesis makes a lot of sense. And if you, especially, I mean, I was going to say, especially in this low rate environment, I mean, rates are still really low, even though they're up like a hundred basis points since their, their bottom, uh, the tenure. But you know, if you can come in and, you know, deploy capital at, you know, relatively attractive spreads or yields, and, you know, you can say, hey, listen, you've got a, you know, $15 million loan on your hotel. You're a good operator that was, you know, in a bad situation. We can bridge you for the next year or two and we'll put, we'll set aside reserves, you know, to get you through this next three or six months. And by the way, we're not going to charge you four uh, percent. We're going to charge you six and a half or seven percent for the uh, for the bridge. I think a lot of operators are probably going to be happy to see that, right? And you know, again, the thesis is that by the middle of 2021, at least according to that Johns Hopkins guy in the Wall Street Journal, by May or April, we're going to have herd immunity, and by uh, maybe by uh, Memorial Day, we'll all be uh, throwing the Lombardi Trophy 
from boats to each other and we'll be out, we'll be going to the malls, we'll be going to the movies and, and things will be great and we'll all be traveling. I will say on just the general hotel and travel concept, I know, uh, you know, John from Nayreed, who I mentioned before, had a very good point. Uh, I don't want to give away everything he said, but this I thought was good. He said that people's risk tolerance or kind of comfortability with all things kind of return to normal is going to be different in terms of personal life versus work life. I mean, I, I tend to agree with him, even though I think it's kind of like not totally moral. If I say like, hey, I'm happy to go to Cancun with my family for a week, but hey, boss, I'm not going to this conference. I mean, I guess it makes sense. You can kind of be safe with your family and not be in a room full of a thousand strangers. But I do think that the the destination or the the shore hotel or, you know, the place that people go on vacation, going to see a heck of a snapback, I think. And you said it, right? The conference centers and wedding venues and things like that, where people may still not be totally comfortable this year, uh, it's going to take some more time. So, you know, we've said it throughout this whole pandemic. We uh, are actively involved with lots of hotel uh, lenders, acquisitions shops, uh, operators, et cetera, who are, you know, looking to take advantage of this market. And I think this is just the big kahuna showing up. It's like when Billy Madison shows up uh, to play dodgeball. It's like, all right, now you're all screwed. Um, <laughs> but what it does, I think, is it's, it puts a floor under the market, right? So, you know, great financial crisis, there was no floor for a while, right? And now I think that this this really sets a floor uh, in the market, you know, and we won't even have to talk about the Jerome Powell floor at this point. Taking a page from what we'll call the Manus Files, we have a tripwire story about a CMBX8 mall loan, which actually serves as an example for how CMBS data can get nuanced during COVID times. Joe, walk us through this story. Yeah, so actually, I believe that this story is going out in tomorrow morning's or Friday morning's Trepwire. So for all you really loyal listeners who listen late on Thursday night, I'm talking to you, Dad, and Steel City Dave, and Mom, and everybody else. I think there's probably a couple hundred others. But anyway, this story is going out to, in tomorrow's Trepwire. So you are getting a little sneak peek here. Um, the story is about the Lincoln Wood Town Center. It's a $46.3 million loan backed by a retail center uh, or a mall in Lincolnwood, Illinois. It's part of uh, a JPM CC 2014 C20 deal. That's part of CMBX 8. It's about 420,000 square feet. Uh, it became 30 days delinquent back in June uh, of 2020. It kind of uh, flip-flopped 30 days back to current, back to 30 days. And then it actually went 90 days delinquent in September and then flipped back to current in October. Now, you know, see if you can follow me. At that time, the loan still was only paid through, I believe it was April. Yeah, it was paid through April, 2020, but the loan was marked as current because the servicer and the borrower executed a forbearance agreement, uh, which expired in November. So why do I say all this? The, the point of this is that if, you were only look, if you're only looking at delinquency status, you may not be getting the whole picture, right? Now, technically, as per CREFC's updated COVID guidance, if there is a forbearance executed 
even if you, you know, you're only paid through three months ago or six months ago, your loan is marked as current, right? Because you've had an agreement with the servicer. The problem is, or I think, you know, I don't think this is a huge problem, but not every servicer is abiding 100% by, you know, the new standard. So it's, you know, you really have to be very careful and you really have to dive into the weeds of, of each loan to figure out what's going on. And that's where kind of the special servicer commentary uh, comes into play. And on this one, now that it's back to delinquency, uh, back into a delinquency status because the forbearance period has ended and now we've gone 90 days past the end of the forbearance period, in the um, commentary, it's noted that the borrower basically has said they're not going to continue to support uh, the debt service payments. So, you know, even though this forbearance was executed and there was flexibility and the special servicer worked with them, you know, there's just, there's not enough recovery in cash flows for the borrower uh, to make a go of it here. So uh, the actual, also the special servicers workout code, uh, which is a fun one, uh, another data point you guys may or may not know about, but those data monkeys like myself are always looking at uh, that workout strategy code is flipped to foreclosure this month, whereas last month it was uh, TBD. So, uh, you know, this is one of those kind of nitty gritty in the weeds data issues that, uh, you know, if you really want to know what's going on, you got to really understand this stuff and, and be able to dive in. We may do something on uh, paid through date in general. So basically look at, you know, percentage of loans with paid through dates greater than, you know, 60 days in the past versus percentage of loans actually marked as delinquent. That's kind of like another version of shadow delinquency there. So, so keep your eye out for this stuff. I think you hit it on the head there, Joe. I mean, this is clearly a differentiator for TREP. We're providing this on the TREP wire for all of our readers and on the podcast to kind of go through some of the nuance of the data. So the data on its face sometimes doesn't tell the, the full picture. You got to dig a little deeper and we try to provide that for our, for our listeners. And I think like you said, those 200 that are listening early tonight, they're going to have a little bit of a head start on that. So I don't know, Haley, do we have like a breaking news sounder or a programming note sounder that we can play real quick? Because I want to uh, to go through a programming note for uh, for some stuff that we've announced here at TREP today. So you may have seen it on Twitter earlier uh, on LinkedIn. We put out some media around this. We wanted to, to shout it out on the podcast. So um, if you know anyone that's an outstanding senior in college looking to break into the CRE or CRE finance uh, space, TREP has launched a new program called the Future CRE Leaders uh, through TREP's education segment. The Future CRE Leaders Award program is designed to recognize standout individuals who are looking to make an impact in the CRE sector upon graduating from their undergraduate studies. Send us an email if you want more information, or like I said, you could find it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, feel free to respond to any of those. Uh, outreaches and be more to be more than happy to provide additional information on what that looks like. We're very excited about this initiative and helping bring in, you know, future leaders into the CRE industry. You know, I really expect when uh, everybody is fully back to campus that at least 15% of students will be wearing some sort of TREP paraphernalia. That's the, that's the ultimate goal of the podcast at this point. I think we should get some of those temporary tattoos that have like either the Irv formula with Trep's logo underneath <laughs> it, uh, or some combination, so that we can get the uh, make it go uh, make it go viral. Maybe a Trep frisbee or a Trep beer koozie or Hacky something sack. like that. Tre <laughs> <Hacky sack. laughs> 
<laughs> we're really dating ourselves now, huh? Maybe, uh, you know, a trip, uh, urinal cake or beer pong table or something like that. You know, we're, we're not above any of it. So let's look at shout outs of the week. We had messages from Noah S., Stephen N., Ashish W. wanted some Deed and Lou information. Alan D. reached out and he actually let us know he listens to the podcast while on his weekend runs in Central Park. So we love to hear what you guys are doing while listening. He also asked the team to continue to highlight REITs on the podcast. So as Joe mentioned earlier, this is perfect timing. We will be publishing our podcast with NAREIT next week. So if you're interested in that market, stay tuned for that one. And then looking at some of our Twitter shout outs, we'll give a quick shameless plug for our Twitter if you aren't following us already, um, at Trepwire. Peyton C. quoted our podcast on Twitter and looked at some of our comments on Dead Malls. BB quoted Manus's remake of a song last week, 50 Ways to Leave Your Mall Keys with the Special Servicer. And then some of our repeat commenters who we really appreciate, Scott B, Steel City Dave. And then lastly, Manus mentioned he's had a number of LinkedIn messages, but due to technical difficulties, he's been unable to respond. But fear not, he'll be back online soon. That's why Manus is missing the podcast this week. He's been on hold with LinkedIn's uh, customer support on the phone for the last 12 and a half hours. So anyway, you know, we've gone on long here. I'm, I had a lot of fun. Thank you, Lonnie. And before we close, Lonnie, things are a little bit warmer in Texas. Give us a vibe check. Yeah, so uh, anything's warmer than last week in Texas. Uh, <laughs> we were snowed in, frozen in, pipes bursting. Uh, unfortunately, we, we laugh about it now, but there were a lot of people really struggling. So we welcomed the, uh, the 75 plus degree temperatures this week. Um, you know, Texas is uh, still rocking and rolling. I mean, I think we have a lot of people announcing corporate relocation still. I mean, they're making progress on the Tesla factory in Austin. Um, I think our economy is still producing. Um, it's very interesting. I saw on my Twitter feed today, there was a lot of promoted tweets from the, the oil and gas industry related to the, uh, the power situation last week. So it'll be interesting to see. We're in a legislative session this year. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any uh, regulation that comes from the uh, the power debacle that happened last week. And uh, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't say filling in for Manus, like you can't replace or fill in adequately for the most interesting man in the world, especially when you're, uh, when you're just uh, some guy from Texas that likes to read prospectus documents on Friday night. <laughs> but uh, hopefully when you hear this Manus, I did okay for you and uh, uh, looking forward to you coming back and uh, Martha, same. Uh, Haley did a great job, but uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be on and had a good time with you and uh, you and Haley today, Joe. Thank you. And with that, we'll close. Thanks for joining us, Lonnie. Join us next week as the whole TREP team is back to discuss what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or just a comment, send us an email at podcast at TREP.com. For more info, visit TREP.com and subscribe to the TREP Wire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.